We're going to be in Mark chapter 10 again this morning, so we can get our Bibles and start turning to Mark chapter 10. If, uh, if you're a guest, we're glad you're here. Um, we have a Veritas in 10 after the service, so if you want to meet and talk with some of the pastors, ask any questions you have, that'll be uh, right down the steps in the dining room, directly following the service. We'd love for you to join us for that. Um, well, my name is Brian. I am one of the pastors here. Normally, I am leading music and liturgy and other things like that, but this morning I am preaching, and on Friday, Friday evening, I was sitting on my back porch reading a book about how to, how to preach, and, and the introduction to this sermon, it walked right up to my house. Her name was Linda, and she was being pulled along by a, a small white dog, and she stopped in front of our house, and, and it turns out she used to live in our house, and so a long conversation ensued as it was getting dark, and at one point during that conversation, she says to my wife, she says, have you ever been on a cruise? I don't know how we got here, but have you ever been on a cruise, she says, and my wife says, no, because it's, it's good to be honest in these situations. She's not been on a cruise. And so Linda says, oh, you must go. You must go because it's a boat full of people saying yes to you. It's a, it's a boat full of people saying whatever you want, laundry, food, drinks, they all get it for you. It's a boat full of servants, and that's, that's the dream, isn't it? It's what we grow up all wanting, it, it, like an all-inclusive resort. It's what we want, because for most of us, it's the closest we'll ever be to being royalty, right? To being kings and queens with people serving us, and so we love it. We want to be like kings as we've grown up knowing them in the, in the movies. And well, Jesus, he, he is the king of ages. He knows what it is to be the king, and he actually, he wants us to be just like him, and he's showing us how in the text this morning. So let's stand together as we read from Mark 10, verses 32 through 45. Verse 32, chapter 10. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid, and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand, it's not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. 
And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And, and Jesus called them to him, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your word. Please speak your word now through my lips into our ears and do with it what you please. Convict us where we need convicted. Comfort us where we need comforted. Encourage us, exhort us, edify us. Your will be done to your glory for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Jesus is leading us in the life-giving way of service. We are to behold Jesus leading the way. We are to forsake the self-serving way of the world. We are to embrace the life-giving way of Jesus. We start out on the road, behold Jesus leading the way. He knows where he's headed. They are on a road, verse 32, and Jesus knows exactly what is at the end of it. For the third time now, Jesus pulls his disciples aside and he tells them that he must suffer, die, and rise. Suffer, die, rise. Suffer, die, rise. It's becoming a mantra for him. He wants to make sure the disciples know that he knows what he is doing. So he tells them, verse 33, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Indeed, this is exactly what's going to happen, as recorded later in Mark chapters 14 through 16. And Jesus knows it will happen because he knows the word of the Lord. He knows that he is the suffering servant of Isaiah that we've spent time in in Good Friday and Easter. He knows from Isaiah 53 that he will be rejected and despised and crushed and wounded. He will be condemned and buried. He knows these things, and yet he is leading the way. Jesus knows where he's going, and he's leading the way. They were going on the road, verse 32, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. They are physically walking up to Jerusalem. It's uphill, and they are sending to the place where sacrifices are offered to God. Jesus is leading the way. He knows where he's headed, and he's walking ahead of them. Now, when I have something mildly uncomfortable in my future, I drag my feet as, as long as possible, but Jesus... He knows the suffering death that awaits him, yet he is resolute, determined. There are no other roads to consider. There's no team meetings to consider and weigh options. This is the way to go. Consider one of the other servant songs from Isaiah 50. It says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God's helped me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, 
His face is set like flint, like a rock. With stone-like certainty, Jesus walks up to Jerusalem. The headwinds of trouble and torment and torture will not erode his will. There's a river of wrath that awaits, but this rock has his rudder locked and straight into the current he wades, and he's taking us with him. Jesus is walking ahead, but he's not walking alone. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus walking ahead of them. Jesus has called his disciples to follow him. Don't follow the road. Don't seek the destination. Follow Jesus. Behold him. Be with him. Be like him. This is Mark's call as he's recorded Jesus. Behold him. Be with him. Be like him. This is the call to the discipleship that Mark has been recording. Wherever he goes, we go. Leave all other treasures, he tells the rich ruler. Leave all other teachings, he tells the Pharisee. Come like a child and follow Jesus. Some were amazed. Their eyes were probably on Jesus. Some were afraid. Their eyes were probably on Jerusalem. But all were following, and Jesus was leading. While Jesus and his followers were all on one road, becomes clear that not all were walking in the same way, on the same way. That gets exposed in the next section. So let's look at verses 32 through 44. It'll be helpful if you can read along in your Bibles. There's a lot of things going on, so we need to just explain some things, and and, uh, we're going to walk through it together, and pun intended there. So verse 35, James and John... The sons of Zebedee came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Each of the three times that Jesus has predicted his suffering, death, and resurrection, the disciples have made fools of themselves. They've jockeyed for position. And and James and John, they, they seem to know this is the last time. And they swing for the fences. They say, do for us whatever we ask of you. They don't ask, but they proclaim their desire For a blank check from Jesus, as if they found a genie in a bottle to grant them the wishes of their heart. And so Jesus, he probes into their hearts. He says, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 36 and verse 37, they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So James and John, they're sensing that the end is near. They think they're going to Jerusalem, and they're, they're hoping for an uprising, for a revolt, for a war, where the rulers of, Gentiles, of the Gentiles will be overthrown, and Jesus will be on the throne. And they're thinking, we want to be at his right hand and left. These were positions of power and prestige in the ancient society, so they want to be right there. If Jesus is going to be in charge, they want to be in charge too. They want to be seen. They want to have some power over people. But verse 38 Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now this, it sounds like a curveball. The disciples don't know what they're asking. They also don't know what Jesus is asking here. And so the cup in the Old Testament It was often a symbol for an allotment from God. Imagine being handed a cup and whatever is in it is yours to drink. Sometimes in the Old Testament, it's pleasure and prosperity, but most of the time it is the judgment and wrath of God. 
And so consider Psalm 75. It calls it a cup of wrath. Isaiah 51, it says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. This is the cup of judgment and wrath that Jesus is talking about. The baptism, likewise in the Old Testament, it means being immersed overwhelmed with water, and it also symbolizes the wrath of God like a flood. Psalm 88, 7, your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. So Jesus is asking James and John if they can bear the judgment and wrath of God against sinners. The answer to this question is supposed to be no. It's obviously no. They cannot bear the judgment and wrath of God against all sinners. Jesus told them they don't understand what they're asking, and he's trying to show them that. But James and John offer an arrogant and conceited answer. They say, we are able. So likely, James and John, they, they think and hope a battle is coming in Jerusalem. They, they think maybe Jesus is just saying, you know, will you fight with me? And they go, yes, we will. We will fight with you. Or, or maybe they just don't even know or hear or care what he's asking. They just want the prestige and power so bad that, yes, we'll do whatever it takes to get, to get those things. Jesus answered them, end of verse 39. He said, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus answers his question first, then theirs. Though they ask for an allotment of power and prestige in Jesus' kingdom, he tells them that an immersive allotment of suffering is coming their way. Likely in the form of persecutions, as was mentioned in verse 30 in last week's passage. But he says that he, Jesus, is not the one to grant positions of power and prestige in his glory because he is on a mission for another. He is walking the road for the glory of God, not himself, and for the good of the Father's lost children. The Father in heaven will decide the seating arrangement in glory. And so James and John are in a predicament. Here, they've asked for power and prestige. They've asked for a promise of their future circumstances. They've asked for the right hand and the left, and they've been given a promise of suffering and uncertainty about their future. Maybe you can relate to them. You've asked God for something, and you're left with fistfuls of, of suffering and uncertainty. James and John, like many they've met along the road before them, they have a choice to make. Are they willing to follow Jesus just to follow Jesus? No earthly power or prestige, but the promise of suffering and uncertainty of future. And to top it off, all of their friends are mad at them. Verse 41, look at that. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. The disciples, they were either eavesdropping or maybe James and John sulked back over and they spilled the beans and now all the disciples are mad because they all wanted power and prestige. But the, the ten didn't get there first and they knew that if James and John succeeded, they would be forced out. They're most likely jealous, angry because they're not getting what they want. So Jesus calls a meeting. He called them to him and he said, you know 
that those who are considered rulers, verse 42, those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. So Jesus, he summoned the ambitious and angry disciples together to tell them what they already knew. Those in power in their world lord it over them. They dominate others. They force others to serve them. The rulers of that, they used physical force and military might to control those under it. The disciples knew it too well. And in verse 43, Jesus says, But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Verse 44, And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, servant is the word we have for deacon, which comes from those who are waiting tables. So imagine a king in his court, and there's lowly servants scurrying around, making sure everyone has what they want when they need it. The servant is an incredibly low position in the side, but the slave is lowest of all. The slave is to be completely surrendered to the will of another. The slave, the slave is devoted to another, to the complete disregard for one's own interest. The slave's will is dead. The will of the master is all that matters. And this means that for those who aspire to be leaders of God's people, Jesus is saying, you must be servants and slaves to God's people. You must see your authority as having a responsibility to make sure the people you are over have what they need most. You must surrender your will for the best interest of the people. Instead of forcing others to serve you, you must force yourself to serve them. Now, Jesus is, is contrasting two different types of leadership, right? And, and in between, Jesus says, verse 43, it shall not be so among you. That's what the ESV says, and it's a right translation, but we might read it wrongly. We might read, it shall not be so among you, and think it means it should not be so among you, like when we tell our children, you should not touch that, and we know how that goes. Or when we say, I, I shouldn't stay up late tonight watching TV, and it's a nice suggestion, but it doesn't quite work. We maybe get a little closer if we can imagine Gandalf, and he's on the bridge with the Balrog, and he's going, you shall not pass, but it's better to just look at at another translation, um, NIV, it says, not so with you. CSB says, it is not so among you. Jesus is not suggesting a gentle change in their leadership style. He's, he's asking them not to be better leaders, but to be leaders in the kingdom of God. It's as if he's speaking to a grapevine, and he's saying, dear grapevine, you know the thorn bushes over there, how they grow thorns, and they cut people so they bleed not so with you. You're a grapevine. You grow grapes. Jesus is not asking to be better leaders, but to be leaders in his kingdom. Philippians 2, 3, we are to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. What Jesus is trying to tell them is that his kingdom is a whole new kingdom with an entirely different power structure. The slave being first the slave being first is just as an absurd statement to these people as a camel going through the eye of a needle. But the leadership structure of Jesus does not share a single pebble of the foundation of the world system. 
See, the disciples, as is revealed in this conversation, the disciples don't want Jesus to replace the kingdom of this world with the kingdom of God. They don't want him to replace the kingdom of this world with the kingdom of God. They want him to replace the rulers of this present kingdom with themselves. When James and John ask for positions of glory, he tells them they don't know what they're asking because they're asking according to the system of the world where the first is first. He answers them according to the kingdom of God, knowing that places of honor in his kingdom are for servants and slaves. And if they'd be seated near Jesus, then they'd need to be as great a servant as Jesus in bearing the judgment of God for sinners. We must forsake the self-serving way of the world. In order to do so, as we've seen this, we must know it. We must know it in the world, and we must know it in ourselves if we're to forsake it. If we don't know it's there, we cannot forsake it. And so this is what it is in this the self-serving way of the world. We need to know it in the world. The self-serving way of the world is forcing others to serve me for my fame. The self-serving way of the world is forcing others to serve me for my fame. But the life-giving way of Jesus is forcing self to serve others for God's fame. The life-giving way of Jesus is forcing self to serve others for God's fame. We know it in the world. We know it so well. The news, you watch it, you listen to it, you read it, it displays force of power all over the place. Crime, war, politics, big business. Movies that we watch, they glorify the lust for power. But maybe that seems far away. What about fame? What about seeking your own? Well, we see that in the world too. James K. Smith said, we live in an age where everybody's famous. We've traded the hope of immortality for a shot at going viral. What is Instagram if not a platform for attention? Arcade Fire song Creature Comfort is a chilling assessment of the extent to which the quest for attention has almost become synonymous with our reason to exist, and if we can't have it, we'd rather not. Stand in the mirror, wait for the feedback, saying, God, make me famous. If you can't, just make it painless. We must be aware of how well we know the self-serving way of the world. Jesus tells James and John, that they don't know what they're asking, but they've gone astray not because they know nothing, but because they know the wrong thing too well. They know the self-serving way of the world where people use power to force others to serve them, and knowing it so well, they've begun to want it for themselves, and they're asking God to give it to them. You know the self-serving way of the world just by living in. This knowing is a common knowledge just by everyday experience. It's not deep intellectual knowledge like you need to study. You just know it by living in it. It's the air we breathe, the water that we swim in. Beware of how much extra time you give your senses to watching and listening even more to the world. You know it well enough already. Do you spend more time mindlessly consuming the way of the world than you spend beholding the exemplary Jesus Christ? We become like what we behold. We begin to want what we know. So beware. 
Also, be aware of what's revealed in our prayer requests. If, we're, if we want to forsake the self-serving way, we need to know what it is, and we need to know if it's in us so we can forsake it. We see the self-serving way of the world. It's gotten into the disciples, into James and John, right on the road. It's in them. It's revealed when Jesus asks them a terrifying question. He says, what do you want me to do for you? And we can ask that of ourselves, what do I want Jesus to do for me? We don't really need to imagine it, do we? It's our, it's, it's our prayer requests. What we pray for, what we share is what we're asking God. We're saying, we want you to do this for us. So what prayer requests do you have of God? David Pallison has an article called Pray Beyond the Sick List. And he lists three things in it, and we should have a slide for it. He says, sometimes we ask God to change our circumstances. Sometimes we ask God to change us. Sometimes we ask God to change everything by revealing himself more fully. These are all good. They're all biblical. We should pray all of these things. Praying... Asking God to change our circumstances, like healing the sick, our jobs, our provisions. Sometimes we ask God to change us, deepening our faith, teaching us to love others, to forgive sins, to make us wise, help us know him better, to understand scripture, to encourage others. Sometimes we ask God to change everything, or we ought to, revealing himself more fully on the stage of real life. Magnifying the degree to which his glory and rule are obvious, his kingdom come, your will be done as it is in heaven. They're all good. We should be praying all of them. But here's what David Pallon says. We tend to pray for circumstances to improve so that we might feel better and life might get better. These are often honest and good requests, praying for circumstances, unless they're the only requests. Unhinged from the purposes of sanctification and from the groaning for the coming of the king, prayers for circumstances become self centered. Like James and John, be aware what your prayer requests might be revealing. If we see a self-centered heart, we repent. We turn from it. Third, be aware of the root of your ambition and anger. Ambition and anger they're, they can be very good things in this passage, but they can be. Aspiring to be a pastor is called a good thing. Jesus displayed anger just a couple passages ago, and it was a good thing. But in this passage, they reveal a self-serving way of the world has creeped in to the hearts of the disciples. James and John are, are not just ambitious for God's glory, they are ambitious for their glory. The, the, the disciples have bitter jealousy. Hear this from James 3. Maybe this sounds like the disciples. Maybe it sounds like us. James 3 says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. It is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder every vile practice. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet, cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. 
You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Selfish ambition, bitter jealousy in the form of anger, not getting what they want because others might get it. It's present in the disciples. If it's present in us, we, we must repent. Robert Raines, he once said this. He said, I am like James and John. Lord, I size up other people in terms of what they can do for me, how they can further my program, feed my ego, satisfy my needs, give me strategic advantage. I exploit people ostensibly for your sake, but really for my own. Lord, I turn to you to get the inside track and obtain special favors. Your direction for my schemes, your power for my projects, your sanction for my ambitions, your blank check for whatever I want. I am like James and John. Be aware of the root of your ambition and anger. If you're angry with a brother and sister, consider if it is bitter jealousy. Consider if you've slipped into the self-serving way of the world, and if you see it, then turn. Confess it, repent, turning, and embrace instead the life-giving way of Jesus. Why? Why should we embrace the life-giving way of Jesus? Why should we force ourselves to serve other for God's glory, giving our lives away, being servants? Verse 45, it says, For... Because, for, he's telling us why our motivation. Verse 45, look at it, read it. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now remember that Jesus is referring to himself as the Son of Man from Daniel 7. It says this in Daniel 7. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. That's what Daniel 7 says of the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He has all dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people should serve him. But he says right here that he came to earth not to be served by them, but to serve them. And he's going to serve in the greatest possible way by giving his life as a ransom for many. A ransom is a price paid for the release of captives. It's bail for prisoners of war. It's a price of release. It's as if, imagine, a million soldiers, a whole army are taken captive, and they try to negotiate for their release. But the only fair trade is for the king of their country to give up his life that they might go free. A ransom is a, is a price of release. Bail for prisoners 
war. And to be clear, the Bible never teaches that Satan was the recipient of the payment. In fact, Satan tried to stop Jesus from going to the cross a few chapters earlier. Jesus was defeated at the cross. He was not paid off. Instead, we see a theme that that God is the one to whom sacrifices are offered. We've sinned against God, but the Bible doesn't clearly say who the payment goes to in the case of ransom. It just, its emphasis is on the great price that is paid. And the price is the life of the Son of Man, the everlasting dominion Son of Man. How grave must our debt be? Wages of sin is death, says Romans 6.23. We have earned an eternal death sentence with our rebellion. Like James and John, we have demanded that God do whatever we ask of him. We have sought to be domineering authorities over the Lord himself. We have tried to steal worshipers of God to worship us instead. We've become so friendly with the self-serving way of the world that we become enemies of God. The ransom price is so high. The only way for me to pay it is to die. The cup of wrath allotted to me will take me eternity to drink it. And you have the same problem. Our greatest need is for someone who is able and willing to drink all of our cups of judgment poured into one giant cup. Jesus is able, and he came to serve. This is silly, but we, we wanted a boat full of servants. But what we need is, is a boat that can serve us, that is strong enough, capable enough to carry all of us through the immersion of wrath that we've earned. And Jesus is able, and he came to serve. His life is the price. First Peter 1.18, you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with, a, with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Christ is not only eternal and immortal, he is perfect, spotless. And the blood that he shed is precious, and the blood, the Old Testament says, is symbol of the life. It is the life of the Son of Man that is the price, and he has given it up. He is the greatest servant. No one can serve better than him. He alone was powerful enough to become the slave of slaves for his will to to be conformed to the greatest will of all the slaves who were indebted forever because of their sin. He became the slave of slaves, and now he is the greatest of the greatest, Revelation 5, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Worthy is he, for he was slain 
And by his blood, he ransomed people for God, says Revelation 5. Now maybe if you're just starting to see this, or see it more clearly like I am, maybe you're feeling a little bit discombobulated. If you've ever been in one of those rooms where the furniture is on the ceiling. I don't know where I've been in one at a museum or something, and the stuff is kind of sideways, and it's all off, and you walk in, and you go, what, what is going on? Or maybe you see one of those pictures, and it's a face, and you look at it, and you go, it's a face, and then people flip it over, and they go, no, it's a, it's a frowning face, and you go, what? And then you, and you look at it more closely, and you go, no, you're right. See, we've known the way of the world too well. We must know Christ better. He is our motivation to give our lives away and lead as servants and slaves. The king is a servant. We need to wake up to this and see the king of kings became the slave of slaves. And because of that, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's upside down. The king of kings became the slave of slaves, and he is the worthy lamb who was slain to receive honor and blessing and power. He humbled himself in his death on a cross. Therefore, he is highly exalted, says Philippians 2. All dominions should serve him. But he doesn't need to be served. Instead, he loves to serve. He loves to give life. He gives up his life to give us life. He gave life to all things in the first place. And now he gives new life to the rebels whose ransom he paid. Edwards, in the commentary, says this. He says, the reason why a servant is the most preeminent position in the kingdom of God is that the sole function of a servant is to give. And giving is the essence of God. Jesus is leading us in the life-giving way, in the way of life-giving service. We are motivated to do it because Jesus has done it, and we can do it because Jesus has paid our debt, and now we have life to give. Before, we were enslaved to our debt. When you're in terrible debt, you can only pay off your debt. You don't have money left to be generous. Christ has paid off, and now we have been set free to serve others. We've been set for, we now have life to give others. If you're, if you're not a Christian, please know, if you haven't trusted in him, all of the good things you're trying, all of the serving is, is only going to try and pay off your debt. It's not actually for other people. It's to make you feel better about yourself, to make you think you're doing better with God. You're serving yourself, trying to get yourself, you're trying to pay off your debt. You cannot do it. You need to turn and trust in Jesus, the Son of God, who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We must behold him, not the world. Behold him. Just like children become like their parents, citizens become like the king. We must be like him too. Going back to to verse 44, or 43, 
Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. So the most clear application here is for pastors. Pastors that are in this room and all those men who have an aspiration, a little desire to be a pastor someday. Maybe you're scared to tell anybody. It's okay. Just listen to me. I won't tell them you're listening. Jesus says, first, whoever would be great among you, desiring to be great is not the problem. The disciples don't want it for God's glory. They want it for their glory. But Jesus, he's serving for God's glory and for others' good. He doesn't know the positions of honor and glory. He's serving for God's glory. You must see your authority, pastors are aspiring, you must see your authority as having a responsibility to make sure the people you are over have what they need most. You must surrender your will for the best interest of the people. Instead of forcing others to serve you, you must force yourself to serve them. First Peter 4.1 says, I exhort the elders among you. As a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over them. That's the word for lording it over, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. As I've been learning about preaching, I've learned that one thing that God wants of pastors is to die to their personal opinions and agendas and to serve the word of God to his people, not to desire to be a pastor, to be seen as good at public speaking, to be seen as wise and intelligent, to have a bunch of experiences and clever stories, but to be those who die to what they want the people to hear and instead serve the word of God like a deacon serving tables. Now there's others of us don't aspire to be pastors, but we want to be leaders in some way in the church you serve in community groups, you serve in hospitality, kids, mercy, other things. You want to lead. You have this desire. You want to see things happen, and you want to leave. First Peter 3.10, it says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. If you have a gift, if you feel a desire to do something, it's from God and it's for others. Not so others will see you and glorify you, but it is from God for you to give to others. Serve. Edwards said again, he said, the Christian fellowship of the church, it does not exist for your sake, but you for it. Receive the gift of God and give it away. Serve. Husbands, 
Your call in Ephesians 5.25 sounds eerily similar. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. The question we're asking with all of these things is, are you forcing them to serve us or forcing myself to serve them? Husbands, you are to give up your life to give your wife life. It's about giving life, giving up yours, giving her life. Serve your wife by giving her the word. Give her time with God and the word. Give her the word itself. Give her what she needs to be nourished and cleansed and consider her needs as your own. Parents, caregivers, you have an authority given to you by God. It's right in the Bible. Children are told they must obey their parents in the Lord. Ephesians 6, 1, for this is right. They're told, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You you have the authority. It's given to you by God. The children have the burden to obey you. Are you forcing them to serve us or forcing myself to serve them? Are you using this authority like a tyrant or a servant? We must, we must lovingly discipline our children. But we must use discipline to raise our children in the righteousness of God's kingdom, not using discipline to raise them in the preferential behaviors of my kingdom. Now, parents, you serve so much. We're not to provoke our kids to anger. I don't want to provoke you to anger either because I know you're listening to the sermon like, I serve all day long. I never stop. I was up all night serving others. I'm at home today serving sick children. I I serve all the time. Maybe an application for you is, is to just embrace it. Accept it. Stop trying to plan your way out of it and purchase your way out of serving and just embrace. You serve your kids. Feed them. Change their diapers in God's kingdom servants are the greatest. Be the greatest servant you can be to your kid. Be the greatest parent you can be by being the greatest servant to them. Martin Luther, he has a quote about the despicableness of the world seasoned parenting and how glorious. I'm going to read part of it. He says, alas, must I rock the baby Wash its diapers, make its bed, smell its stench, stay up nights with it, take care of it when it cries, heal its rashes and sores, and on top of that, take care of this and that, and do this and that, and endure this and that, and whatever else of bitterness and drudgery this life involves. Why should I make a prisoner of myself, the world says? But what does Christian faith say this? It opens its eyes, looks upon all these insignificant, distasteful, and despised duties in the spirit, and is aware that they are all adorned with divine approval, as with the costliest gold and jewels. It says, O oh God, because I am certain that you have created me as a man and have from my body begotten this child, I also know for certain that it meets with your perfect pleasure. I confess to you that I am not worthy to rock this little babe or wash its diapers or to be entrusted with the care of the child. 
How is it that I, without any merit, have come to this distinction of being certain that I am serving your creature and your most precious will? Oh, how gladly will I do so, that the duties should be even more insignificant and despised. God, with all his angels and creatures, is smiling, not because fathers and mothers and caregivers are washing diapers, but because they are doing so in Christian faith. Parents, keep going. You're doing a good work. Keep going. Others of us, maybe we have a position of leadership or authority in the workplace, and I don't know exactly how this applies to your situation, but I ask, are you any different than your peers? Are you different than the managers in your field? Do you see your position of power as a responsibility to serve those under you? I implore you to display the true way of the king at your job. We must be like Jesus, and in do so, we must forsake the way of the world. We must behold Jesus, be like him. We also must be with him. Jesus started out on the road, and he said to them, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man must die. Our lives are enmeshed with his. We go up to Jerusalem. He dies. If you're not with him, trust in him. His death on the cross will be your death. His life will be your life. Be baptized with him into his death and into his life. He will rise, Jesus predicts. We will be with him in his power and glory. He will complete the redemption of our bodies, that we will be fully with him, that he started in the redemption and the ransom that he paid. Be with him. Be like him. Behold him. We all grew up wanting to be kings and queens. We still want to be kings and queens. Jesus is, is the true king. and He knows where he's headed. He's taking us with him. Behold him, be with him, be like him. Give your life away to give life to others. Give your life to serve others. Jesus is leading the way. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to see you clearly. We see the world so clearly. We need you to help us see it in ourselves, to run away from it, and embrace Christ as the true king and the true slave of slaves who is now exalted on high. May we give our lives to following him. Help us, empower us with the resurrection power of Jesus and plant this word in our lives. May it be effectual for your glory and for the good of your church. We ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.